Hello and welcome to another episode of Consumer, the European podcast of the Consumer Choice Center. As always, I'm your host, Bill Wirtz, and we have the new intro music playing out here in the background. As always, if you want to support this podcast, you can do so by going on consumerchoicecenter.org slash donate. We are Thursday, February 8, 2024. And uh, the second episode of Fun Police has just been released. So for all of you who religiously subscribe to the Fun Police podcast series, uh, yesterday we released episode two, hosted by Jan Losarski. He's done a great job at talking about the FCTC and his little teaser. It was decided that that journalists shouldn't be allowed to stay and see what happened with the discussions and the votes. I decided to stay there and sort of make a, st a statement, uh, stand up for government transparency, stand up for the freedom of the press. On this episode of Fun Police, an underreported, under-the-radar international organization with nearly unlimited funds and the willingness to snuff out anyone who might ask a question. It's five or six um, Indian um, police officers to, to physically pull me out. I mean, I had bruises on my, on my arms and my shoulders, and uh, I was sort of deposited outside. Fun Police, Season 2, Episode 2, When Global Health Gets a Baton. Great episode to learn more about the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control. So if you ever wanted to know what that's all about, Yal has all the details in his episode and a great interview that he played there as well. So do subscribe. If you're on a podcast player right now, type in Fun Police and you can subscribe and also hit the notification bell so you never miss a new episode. We have two more episodes coming out next week and the week after that and who knows maybe there might be more seasons of the fun police podcast going forward i really enjoy making it my guest this week is mike salem he's the uh, uk country associate for the consumer choice center a new addition to the team so we're talking to him about what he does and also who he is and how westminster works how does the politics in the uk work so you hear you'll hear the entire exchange at the end of this episode also in this episode, the European Parliament will be using TikTok for the European elections. And Poland is opening its market, its rail market for competition earlier than expected. So let's get started. The European Parliament has announced that it will be using the uh, Chinese social media platform TikTok uh, in anticipation of the European elections to pass information and to talk more about what it does. And um, which is all a bit interesting because some of you may remember this story from last year. Staff working at a key branch of the European Union have been ordered to remove the TikTok app from their phones and from any other device uh, which also has official EU programs. The European Commission says it's taking the measures to protect data and increase cybersecurity. TikTok is owned by the Chinese company ByteDance. It's faced numerous allegations that it harvests users' data and hands it to the Chinese government. However, TikTok insists that operates no differently from other social media platforms. So despite the fact that both the European Commission and the European Parliament are not allowed, I mean, the people who work there are not allowed to have TikTok on their phone or at least are not, I mean, disincentivized to use it, um, the European Parliament will be using it for its own platforms. And uh, it says uh, that this would allow the European Parliament to fight disinformation and get the message across while keeping Parliament systems secure. Uh, I assume 
that uh, all of this will not be on the networks of the European Parliament. I guess this using a, a burner phone or something to use TikTok. And it's all a bit strange because, you know, if we're concluding that the the fact that Chinese that the Chinese Communist Party is involved in in TikTok that that is not safe for the people who work at the European institutions. If we conclude that that's not a good idea, that it's not safe for them, then it maybe also isn't safe for consumers. And that doesn't mean we need to have legislation about banning TikTok, but it certainly sends a weird message when the official accounts of the European Parliament are present on that platform. It gives legitimacy to 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 that platform because if a consumer looks i mean i don't think anyone signs up for tiktok just because the european parliament is on there let's get that you know clear but it certainly says that the platform must have some level of safety and i think that might be the wrong message the idea that you know you need to be present everywhere including the places that you yourself have stated are not safe is probably not a good message to send. Euractiv writes in an article, quote, the Conference of Presidents, the European Parliament's body responsible for setting the plenary session agendas, is expected to discuss the matter at its meeting next Thursday, which is today. Euractiv learned from multiple sources close to the matter. The Conference of Presidents will also likely approve a debate for the next plenary session at the end of February on foreign interference during the European elections, together with the Rule of Law Commissioner Vera Jourova, an internal document from the European Parliament seen by Euractiv states. The first ban on the Chinese-owned social media application occurred in the European Commission when IT services requested staff to uninstall TikTok from corporate devices. At the time, the European Commission IT service justified the decision by mentioning protection concerns of Commission data and the need to increase its cybersecurity. So Commission data needs to be safe. All other consumers um, you know, have to fend for themselves. All a bit strange, that kind of decision. Next up, Poland is opening its rail passenger market to competition earlier. That at least is the announcement by the new Polish government. And it says that it wants to do that to increase competition uh, on, on the market and increase also the capacity of the market. Polish market has for rail has grown uh, 10% in recent years. More people are using the train. And uh, the uh, Polish state-run operator is sort of running behind what it can do. And Politico is writing uh, uh, also about how difficult it has been for private rail operator in the past. An external operator, they say, wanting to access Polish rail has to apply to the UTK, which is the rail regulator. And the regulator has to determine if the new entrant will harm links subsidized by government. That has led to most such applications being rejected. Politico also quotes Carol Trammer, the editor of railway industry magazine Zbiegemzin, probably completely butchering that the way I just said it, and he says, every time a carrier files to operate a connection, the UTK analyzes what will be the economic impact of the proposal, especially if the new connection will be competing against a state-subsidized intercity connection. End of quote. So it's definitely been difficult, even those two private rail operators, um, which are uh, Leo Express and Regiojet from the Czech Republic, um, you know, they have been present in the south of Poland, but it's been difficult for other rail operators to to go on that market. 
And it's certainly something that has been, uh, you know, hampering the the, the, the situation. Uh, the minister himself told Politico that it's just been a shame that some consumers are switching over to cars when they wanted to take a train. It's just that they can't get a seat anymore or because the trains are notoriously, um, you know, overcrowded or any of those things. So it's um, it's something that, you know, should be celebrated. The Polish government wants to increase competition. Uh, I I do love trains. I'm a, I'm a big fan. You know, I recently took a connection from it was a high speed connection from Porto to Lisbon. A very pleasant journey if you ever have the opportunity to to do it. Um, so yeah, it should be celebrated. More competition, more access to markets means more consumer choice and uh, better prices. And now let's move to the interview of the week. I'm talking to Mike Salem. He's the new Consumer Choice Center team edition. He's the UK country associate for the Consumer Choice Center. So listen in to the interview we recorded. Uh, Mike is, uh, I don't know. What is Mike? Mike, tell us, who are you? Oh, that's, that's a heavy question to start off with. I mean, I studied four years of philosophy and I, it only makes you wonder about yourself more. So uh, it is a good question because I, you know, I've lived in Syria, I've lived in Lebanon, I've, I've moved several times and uh, I was placed in these different cultures and it's hard to find your identity moving so many times. You know, I'm British, I'm Syrian, where do I stand? But uh, I'd like to think Mike is, uh, is just a, a, tw- a 23-year-old young man uh, who is trying to make some good um, in, in London as best as he could and in the UK and hopefully, you know, even wider. But um, yeah, Mike is a, a recent graduate of the LSE. Uh, he studied PPE for four years, a uh, very lovely university. It, it really allowed me to explore my line of thinking. So I like to think a lot. So Mike is a thinker. Uh, Mike is a musician. Uh, he plays the violin and the bassoon. Uh every thursday if he can yes uh and i enjoy my sports so i like to be i'd like to get involved in sort of as many things to sort of stimulate different aspects of my brain and sort of my lifestyle um i don't like uh repetition as much so i like doing different things um, but yeah that's me in a brief nutshell well then tell, tell tell the audience what you were doing before you joined ccc uh, before I joined CCC, I was uh, on a holiday hiatus uh, where I was tra- well, I was doing my own version of the Grand Tour, but sort of cherry picking which countries I wanted to visit. So I did a lot of European uh, road travels. Um, I was on holiday in Mauritius, very lovely country. I highly recommend visiting. They did not pay me to say that. Uh, uh, and um, uh, yeah, I mean, I gra- I'm a recent graduate of the LSE, so I, I studied there. And during my time... Uh, in my final year, I was involved in a project uh, with the Foreign Office because that's part of the course. Uh, very much enjoyed it. Um, and I was also the secretary of the Hayek Society, uh, which is a, a university society named after the Austrian economist Friedrich Hayek, uh, who advocated for free market economics and, and that sort of thing. But uh, our focus was there on freedom of speech. And, you know, we did a lot of events when COVID was happening and, and we were one of the more active societies on campus. So my focus was just on hosting debates on on campus. And that got me in touch with many people from across the political spectrums, all the different stakeholders, whether it's policy, uh, think tanks, uh, you know, politicians, the whole shebang. 
So, I mean, I'm I'm from Luxembourg, so I'm used to the very uh, continental European way of, uh, of of politics, and and the UK has a very special system, and this is something I wanted to wanted to talk to you about, and it's something I realized more when I traveled to Malaysia for the first time last year, because when I arrived and I inquired about the way that policy politics is, is, is made in Malaysia, they said, oh, we follow sort of the UK model, which comes out of its history, of course. But essentially, they said, you know, all these think tanks and policy groups that inform the prime minister and, and the different members of the government, it's very much set up these select committees where people testify, where think tankers try to influence the policy. And, and it dawned on me that that is a system of its own that has been exported in, in, in different ways, um, but is but is very unique. So maybe can you you, uh, if, if you can, sort of, in, and, and to the extent that you know, the differences maybe between what people in the rest of Europe might be used to in, in terms of how hmm. policy and politics is conducted in the UK versus for what people might be used to. Yeah, uh, of course, uh, that's a very fascinating question. And even though many, some countries have parliamentary democracies and sovereignty, I, I always maintain the UK is very unique because of its history. Um, so the, the main difference, I think, you can say between Europe and uh, and the UK is the pragmatist side of it. So we haven't got a codified constitution. So it's not really all produced in a single document where every law passed by parliament is equally as important as the other one in terms of legality. So um, we're very pragmatic on that. We can pass legislations quickly. We can revoke legislations quickly. So that's the key difference where I think in Europe is more, you've got, you know, the code Napoleonic code uh, there. You've got codified constitutions. Things are a bit more difficult to change. Um, so that's the main thing about the UK. The second thing is parliamentary sovereignty, which means that parliament is the legal arbiter of, of all laws. I mean. Uh, um, and, you know, the executive uh, presents the legislation in Parliament and legally Parliament approves or, you know, amends or rejects. Of course, politically, things could be different. Of You know, the prime minister often introduces, the government often introduces legislation and they introduce legislations that they think would, will pass in Parliament. And, you know, they twist arm MPs to vote. But generally, um, legally, I mean, there's no question about it. Parliament is is the sovereign, which... I think is an alien concept to some uh, European uh, countries. And that was a big topic of discussion during Brexit. And now after Brexit, uh, with, with these powers restored to the UK Parliament, some argue politicians don't know how to use it because it's been so away from them for the last 30 years. Uh, and finally, the monarchy. Oh, of course, you know, in Luxembourg, you've got a grand duchy, uh, uh, Belgium as well, and, and Netherlands, they've got monarchies, um, some other European countries. But uh, the UK monarchy is, is, is quite unique, I think, in the sense of for how long it's been there and the evolution of its role within British politics and, and the stage where it is now. So I think these are the key differences. Oh, and just one little thing, our federal arrangement as well is quite unique. I would call it a quasi-federal arrangement where we have a heavily centralized government in Westminster which can rule on anything, um, well, Parliament, and you've got then the uh, Welsh Assembly, uh, the Scottish as well, and, and the Northern, Northern Irish Assembly. So... Um, it's all very central, but also complicated. Well, and, and, and let's talk about sort of the policy making, how policy comes about in uh, in Westminster. Because what is so fascinating to me is if you compare the three countries, you compare Germany, France, and the UK, 
in France, if you want to influence policy as a think tank, research institute, academic, or just pundit, you'd have to be in Paris. There's no other place you would be. There's no other way you can influence politics unless it's on a very large scale with, with protests, as we've seen now with, with farmers. In Berlin, there is a very small group of people that will try and influence in Berlin. But a lot of that is so decentralized because Germany is so decentralized. And what is so interesting to me is that the UK, at the same time of having this constituency model, where you have MPs that represent the specific interests of their constituency, you still have this fairly sizable Westminster insider group of people. And and so I'm not sure if you can if you can speak to that sort of like at the same time where people, where sort of the constituents talk to their MP in those offices, wherever that is, whether it's in the countryside or in larger cities. But then you also have those group of people that influence in Westminster. And sort of how do those diverge in, in topics and how successful can they be in terms of influencing policy? Yeah, so uh, another good point there. Uh, what I like, the other thing which I found fascinating in the UK is that uh, Yes, you know, you elect your representative every five year, five years, but there's almost this element of, yeah, we only show up, we vote for five years, they go, they do their job, and if we're not happy with it, we'll just put them out of power. So there isn't much fuss or commotion about every vote or, you know, there are some issues which people, of course, like to raise concerns with their local MPs with, but generally people's attitude to politics is, well, we'll vote once, we'll see how this MP does, and then if we're not happy in five years, we'll just get them out. Um and of course, MPs uh, value their constituencies very well, and uh, and they visit every week, and they hold surgeries, and they've been increasing over the last few years because of the increasing size of government. So you know you've got more casework you have to deal with, and and that's the thing. Maybe that's the change where people are now more interested in politics because the government's doing more and more things, so they they have the need to speak to their MPs. But as to Westminster itself. Uh, yeah, I mean, if if you are a lobbyist, I mean, lobbying is very restricted in the UK. I wouldn't call it lobbying. But if you'd like to have a chat with an MP about a particular policy or float an idea, uh, I think it's a good idea to be in London um, if you want to do something in Westminster. Of course, if your focus is more on sort of, uh, for example, the increase on minimum alcohol pricing in Scotland, then you're probably better off being in Holyrood Um you know, equally, if there's something in, in, in the Welsh Assembly you're interested in, then you're probably better off being in Cardiff. But uh, generally in the UK, yeah, it's a good idea to be in Westminster, which is why many think tanks are there. And the way it goes about is obviously some MPs have interests in, in, in these think tanks and their ideas. And I'm sure they attend some events. And we do a lot of events in London uh, on a range of things. And different think tanks do on different different lines of arguments. You have for or against for example, free trade or protectionism. So there's always something going on and MPs uh, uh, will, will quickly fill their diaries with, with these things. And, and that's how it begins. Of course, uh, you know, think tanks write reports, um, they publish them, some MPs read them, they also send them to the MPs' offices. But uh, yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't really believe in this sort of Tufton Street uh, notion that people say, sort of complete influence over MPs. Yeah, I 
I, I don't agree with that. Well, in any case, if there is influence by think tanks, it, it always seems to go both ways. I mean, all, all sides have their uh, foundations and, and, and think tanks that try and influence the policymakers uh, in, in, in one way uh, or the other. Um, uh, one topic that is big on your agenda now, um, as, 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 you, as you work with us, is uh, the whole issue of tobacco harm reduction. And the UK has... Uh, you know, the government is now pursuing a policy of a generational ban, which would ban uh, people uh, uh, born after, and you correct me here, I think it's the 1st of January 2009, anyone born uh, after that will not be uh, able to buy uh, tobacco products. But simultaneously, the government is also banning the use of the, the disposable uh, uh, e-cigarettes. Now, it has done all of that fairly quickly, uh, even though you already mentioned legislation can go through the House of Commons fairly quickly. Um, this, this, this notion of sort of this, this nanny stating, this, you know, governing people's lives in order to improve public health has been sort of a thing since David Cameron. Um, and, 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 and the Tories have really honed in on this nudging and, and influencing and people's personal choices through different types of taxes and all that. Um, is this just a continuation uh, of that under, under Rishi Sunak? Do you think Rishi Sunak is as much of a nanny or was he, was he convinced for that, by that, for like that, that idea by, by someone else? Um, your reading on sort of why the government is, is going about this now. Yeah, I think, um, politicians have you know or you know prime minister hopefuls have some ideas about what they want to do and then they get to office and then they realize the practicalities of it all and you know the difficulties and the political difficulties the uh, administrative difficulties and the implementation difficulties uh, now in terms of all these uh, taxations and bans and nudging i mean once you it i i it's a cliche but it's, it is a slippery slope. And let me explain why economically it is a slippery slope. Because once you start interfering in people's uh, uh, decisions, then you, you, are change, you are distorting their indifference curves. You are, you are encouraging them to take substitutes. So in the case of ban, you know, banning disposable single-use vapes, uh, if you ban those, then you know, people are not going to stop vaping, especially if you claim that it is addictive, which it is. They're not going to just, oh, well, damn. Okay, let's not smoke anymore, I guess. No, they're going to find another alternative and, and smoke that. Um, and then that compels the government to pass another legislation to ban that thing or tax it. Or So once you embark on this first step of interfering and distorting the indifference curves and people's preferences, good one and good two, you know, you are, you are affecting that. And, and, and effectively, it just means you have to continually interfere until you pretty much, uh, well, I don't know what will happen. It'll be interesting. I haven't, you know, really given it thought, you know, where's the end with all this? Do they ban many things or do they ease back? I think what will happen is probably ease back on things. Um, someone will realize this is not sensible and uh, and all these measures will be scaled back. Right, Mike. Um, we're about out of time here. Um some things that you were particularly excited to work on. I mean, we already touched on one issue, uh, but what do you think are sort of the the, the biggest issues for the UK um, uh, in the in, in the next, let's say, two to three years? What are I mean, the, the government is trying to uh, regulate AI. It's trying to look, you know, to the future, probably also to the next election. There's always an election just around the corner. But what do you think will be the main focus points uh, going forward in UK politics? What 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 should people watch out for in terms of 
in terms of issues that are going to be coming up. Mm. Well, obviously, we are in an election season now, so all the preferences are heavily distorted on 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 what people think is important. And some of these things are, of course, the, the classic line on, on immigration and the boats and all that. I think that would be a big talking point in the elections, especially that the Tories kept promising to cut that and they haven't. So, And everyone's angry about that. So that would be a talking point. The NHS is always a talking point and, uh, and uh, it's always sort of more funding, make it bigger when the reality is it needs, it needs huge reform. Uh, it needs to be sort of, I mean, it's a big administrative problem, the NHS, and, and the way they're dealing with it at the moment is is, is not good. It's just listening to, to the emotional appeal of it. Um, cost of living, of course, you know, things are have still not come down price-wise. And, you know, the everyday man and women on the street are still feeling the impact of that and they'd like something to be done. Uh, the media plays a big role. I mean, two, a few weeks ago, we had a, doc, uh, we had a sort of a, documentary drama about the post office scandal where a bunch of um, uh, post office masters were falsely accused of stealing money from the post office because of a system fault and it's all come out that it was a system fault and those people should not have been sacked and imprisoned and all that and they made a documentary movie out of drama out of it drama series and the public really liked it and and the government decided that they should take swift action on it now of course what's happened was wrong but the fact that it took a drama series and the popular opinion to change just shows you where the priorities are at the moment in British politics. But something I'm personally interested in working on would be the AI stuff. Uh, The economy as well. I'm very interested in monetary policy, um, money printing, quantitative easing, the impact of that, which is often not discussed anymore. Um, This is sort of boring, grown-up stuff, but it's very important. But AI is exciting. I like, you know, self-driving cars and things like that. So I I look forward to that. Well, we are looking forward to working with you, Mike. Thank you so much for joining the Consumer Podcast. Great. Thank you very much, Bill, for having me on today. And that concludes this week's episode of Consumer. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow Mike Salem on X at MikeSalem001. And of course, follow the Consumer Choice Center as well at Consumer Choice C. As always, I'm your host, Bill Wirtz, and I'll see you on Thursday.